Amen. Wonderful job, choir. Mark, thank you so much. We're in Mark chapter 7, if you want to turn there, but we'll kind of be jumping around a little bit as well. And I have to admit, I was a little nervous when I walked in the room today and I didn't see Billy and Travis. I thought maybe they got called to glory and I got left behind. (laughs) But then I saw you find people, and I've worked with Billy and Travis for five years. There's no way they got called and y'all got left behind. So... It was a helpful reminder that things are not always what they seem. Things are not always what they seem. We are now past Easter. Spring is here. Baseball season has arrived. Just around the corner will be summer vacation season. And for our students in the room, in just a few short weeks, we'll have final exams. Final exams are that last opportunity to show that you have a comprehensive understanding of what it is that you've just spent the last several years, or maybe the last year, and that you understand what it is that that you've gone through. Today's passage is about a final exam. The disciples have been with Jesus. He's been teaching them. He's been leading them. It takes place in the springtime as well, but rather than around Easter, the crucifixion is still a few weeks away. So not in April. This is more likely to have happened in late February or early March. Just a few short months after that, in late May, or early June, we will have the day of Pentecost, which is where the Holy Spirit comes down and anoints all of the disciples and sends them off on their first job to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. So the question today is, are they ready for that? that this is why this is their final exam. And along the way for us, we'll pick up three key insights as we look at this together. The first thing we'll look at is how to interpret difficult passages. This is a difficult passage. I'm going to give you some tools, I hope, that you can use on your own. So the next time you encounter a difficult passage, you can apply some of these and be in the know. Second thing we'll look at is how to interpret this particular passage well. And the third thing, as a result of all of that, we'll see the absolute beauty that Christianity has provided to our world through the gospel of Jesus as a result of today's encounter. But before we get there, I want to talk to you about another spring. This one was not so long ago and not so far away. It was the spring of 1925 when a Tennessee representative by the name of John Butler led the passage of what became known as the Butler Act. This was the banning of the teaching of evolution in Tennessee public schools, and he led that charge. There was a problem with this, however. There was a state-mandated or state-approved textbook, biology textbook, that had a whole chapter in it on evolution. So you can see the dilemma for Tennessee teachers. This put them really in a corner where they had to decide, do they obey the mandate to teach the Tennessee-approved textbook, or do they obey the mandate not to teach on evolution? And this became the beginning of what we now know as the Scopes Monkey Trial, the showdown between science and religion. But remember, things are not always as they seem. You might remember our minister to, our ministry resident to young adults, Sam Maxwell. He's not, he wasn't the young minister of young adults. That's my job. Uh, <laughs> ministry resident to young adults, Sam Maxwell, who was here with us for the previous two years and then took a, a ministry gig in Virginia, which was great. That's what the residency program is for. But he was here with us for two years. He was from West Virginia, born and raised, and he had a lovely wife named Eurus that many of you got to know as well. And she was from El Salvador. So one time, Sam came up to me and he said, hey, 
Eurus's grandmother is here this weekend. I think you'd like to meet her. I said, absolutely I would. And then knowing Eurus's heritage and knowing that she was bilingual, I asked, hey, does Eurus by any chance call her grandmother abuela? Sam said, sure does. So Sunday morning comes around. They're sitting right back there. I walk in at the end of the service. And I see Eurus, and I see next to her this diminutive, gray-haired woman. Now remember, Sam is from... West Virginia. Eurus is from El Salvador. So I go up to this gray-haired woman and I say, hello, Eurus's abuela. I'm John. I'm Sam's boss and it's so wonderful to meet you. And she looks at me. I kid you not. She gives me a hug. She looks me straight in the eye and she goes, oh, hello. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm thinking, who did I just hug? <laughs> then she says some other things to me with a British accent. That, or, because she was British, not, <laughs> she said some other things to me in, with a British accent, and I can't repeat those for you, not because it was inappropriate, but because you would be more offended if I tried to say anything else with a British accent other than hello. But she does, and I walk away, frankly, very confused. And so I see Sam later, and I say, hey, um, so yours is abuela. Is she British? And he said, oh, yeah, she is. Did I not tell you that? And I thought, no, you didn't. That would have been really helpful, you know. <laughs> so I said, when your family gets together for like the holidays and everything, is it like, and he's like, a meeting of the United Nations? Yeah. All of this was information that I could have used because, as I said, things are not always what they seem. Scripture today is about Jesus and the disciples' encounter with a woman from another culture and the resulting confusion and the misrepresentation that comes from that. Our scripture was read actually as a blend of Mark and Matthew by Joanna and by Lydia uh, because there's really details in each story that it helps us to be able to see and understand. So Joanna read the part of Matthew, uh, Lydia read the part of Mark, but we're going to look in and around Mark to get a fuller picture of what's going on. You often hear this passage interpreted in one of two ways. One way is to say that this was a test of the woman's faith. Another way is to say that this was a moment where the woman exposed Jesus's humanity, or some would even say Jesus's racial bias, and opened his eyes and understanding of what he was here to do. I would like to propose that both of those interpretations are a little bit off base, if not, if not majorly off base. I want to instead propose to you that this is a test of the disciples' faith. And it is one where we are going to see how little that they really understand because keep in mind, their first job is months away. So this is the time to pass your final exams and they don't pass. So why would I suggest to you that this is an interpret, that, that you should think about an interpretation that you probably have not heard before? Well, just as a movie producer doesn't want you to watch only two minutes of his movie and make a declaration about it, or a TV show producer doesn't want you to watch one show and decide what the show's all about, Mark gives us a full picture of who Jesus is. And this story is in there linked to other stories in and around it, all of them about bread and all of them about cleanliness and uncleanliness. And we have to look at those all together, just as we would when we're watching a movie or television show. And when we do that, we learn that things are not always what they seem. So after the ACLU placed an ad in Tennessee newspapers declaring that they would cover the legal fees of any teacher who'd been accused of teaching on evolution, 
A Dayton, Tennessee businessman by the name of George Rappelier saw the ad, and he was a man of ideas. The economy in Dayton was down at the time, and he knew that this would be a controversial subject and topic, and so he got the bright idea to find a teacher and have the trial hosted in Dayton, Tennessee. He met with some other local leaders at the local barbershop. Back in that day, when you met in the local barbershop, that's when things went down. And so that's what they did. It's the spring of 1925. They went to one teacher who declined to be the guinea pig, so to speak. And then they found their guy, a 24-year-old football coach, but also physics and math teacher. He didn't even teach biology, but he did sub in there from time to time. And they asked him, did you teach on evolution? And he said, I, I really don't recall, but if it was in the textbook, I imagine that I did. And then they said, are you willing to take the fall so that we can attract all this business to, to Dayton, Tennessee? He said, yeah, sure. And it seemed like he was an excellent choice, at least by conventional wisdom, because he had not been in, in the teaching profession very long. He was well-liked around town, and he was a single guy. So, hey, it's not going to affect his family if anything bad happens from it or whatever. Besides, who's going to be talking about this 100 years from now? Well, things are not always what they seem. The attention that it brought to the town was immediate. Papers from all over the United States and even from London and Paris came to cover what they called the trial of the century. Miles and miles of radio and telegraph lines were laid across the country so that it could be broadcast from coast to coast. All accounts of the town described the environment being a circus-like atmosphere. And for the ACLU, they wanted it to be a test case, a case that would set a precedent so that they could appeal and go to the Supreme Court. Their plan was not to make it an issue on the freedom of religion, but on the freedom of speech. What changed all of that? And the reason why it's commonly associated or understood the way it is today are a few things. One, the presence of the rivalry that developed between Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan. Number two, Clarence Darrow, his, his whole plan in the trial was to bring scientists to the witness stand and question them about science. The judge did not allow that, so he had to call an audible in the middle of the trial, and he ended up calling William Jennings Bryan to the stand, and that led to the debate that they have that we all know today, but it was never originally planned. The other thing that changed the way we understood it was the media portrayal of the events because every newspaper was covering it. Every newspaper wanted you to read their paper and buy their copy. So they all covered it sensationally, just as they do today. So remember, things are not always what they seem. But when they aren't always what they seem, it's helpful to remember that we can zoom out and take account of the things going on around it to get a fuller picture of what's going on. For instance, I was in my previous home of Chattanooga, Tennessee, not too long ago, and I was driving around and I noticed this political sign, and it said in bright, bright blue letters, Esther Helton voted for Barack Obama twice, and twice was really big. Now that wouldn't be really anything spectacular, it's your standard local political zinger, but what made it really interesting was when you zoom out, when you take stock or take account of the signs that are located around it. And what I found interesting about this particular sign was the sign that was right next to it. It, blue letters, Esther Helton voted for Barack Obama twice. Right next to it, another sign, red letters. Esther Helton did not vote for Barack Obama twice. And I thought that was 
so hilarious because which is it? Did she vote for him twice or did she not? Did she vote for him once or maybe Esther Helton put out both signs and she's really a political genius? <laughs> Whatever it is, there's a story there. But you only get the story when you zoom out and you take account of what's going on around. So let's look at this story of Jesus with this woman in Mark chapter 7. Jesus and his disciples are approached by this woman, and he says it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dog. And the, the woman is the one who agrees, and the woman is the one who says, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs. And Jesus commends her for her faith. There's a few things to note here. Number one, some people take umbrage at the fact that Jesus uses the word dog, but it's helpful to note that he doesn't call her a dog. He's just sort of using a parable form of teaching, and he's doing it in a way that she would understand because she's a parent, and what he is saying is, as parents, you have to prioritize your children. She understands that intuitively. She's doing that very thing here. So it's not, we really shouldn't take a whole lot out of that other than to say Jesus is using a parable example like he always does. When you look at the story of Matthew, as we did earlier. Matthew indicates that the woman comes to Jesus after Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He says that in response to the disciples coming to him. So it's logical for us to assume that his remark about being sent to the lost sheep of Israel was made to the disciples. Why? Because it is going to be their job to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. They're the ones that are going to be sent. That's their job, and it's coming down the pipe. So the two things to take away are the priority of the children and Jesus' response to the disciples. And to understand that, we have to zoom out some more. Immediately before this, Jesus has this encounter with the Pharisees, where the Pharisees come and they say, hey, your disciples aren't abiding by our cleanliness rituals. And Jesus responds by saying, it's not what someone does on the outside that makes them clean. It's what comes out of their mouth or what comes out of their heart. And this is a lesson that he has right in front of the disciples. Then he immediately follows that up by taking them into this land called Tyre, which was outside of Israel in the land of the Gentiles or the land of the unclean. And who do they encounter? This woman that Mark calls a Syrophoenician or that Matthew calls a Canaanite. Both are terms that clue us in that she's nothing like them, that she is not Jewish or anything close. It would be like us going to Vancouver, Canada and meeting someone who is French Canadian. Do you see what's going on? Jesus has a lesson with the disciples on what makes people clean or unclean and then immediately takes them into unclean territory where they have a woman, an encounter with an unclean woman. And the writers of these gospels want us to understand what's going on. But let's zoom out a little further because right before that, Jesus is in Israel and he feeds the 5,000 and he does this on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee. You have a map in your bulletin that'll help you see this. He does this the, on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee. And he feeds them bread, and there are 12 basketfuls left over. 12 basketfuls of bread to say that he is the bread of life for the 12 tribes of Israel, and there is more than enough to go around. He can supply them with all they need and more. This is on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee in the land of Israel. From there, they get into the discussions with the Pharisees and he takes them up to Tyre and he's testing the disciples' understanding of their role. 
not just his role for Israel, but his role for the world and their role for the world because in just a few months, that is going to be their job. He tests their level of understanding entire up on the Mediterranean coast. They fail. Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel to the disciples because he's waiting for them to respond with intercession for the woman, and they do not. And he says to her, he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs. And he's waiting for the disciples to say this. But not only do they fail, they fail after following him for three years. And not only do they fail after following him for three years, they're shown up by a woman who's been following him for three minutes. Hear me out. The woman should absolutely be commended. She should be celebrated. But she's not the hero of the story. Jesus is. And this is not a lesson for her. It's a lesson for the disciples. And they fail. So where do they go from here? They go south. Southeast, actually. And they wind up on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is also outside Israel. Jesus has taken them from the land of the unclean in the northwest what if we were in Alabama and we were trying to think about it, we would say, okay, the land of the unclean in the Northwest is Vancouver, Canada, right? He's taking them from there, the land of the unclean in the Southeast, what we in Alabama would call Florida. <laughs> no, no offense if you're from Florida, just a joke. So for further evidence, Mark dictates or indicates that this is in the land of the Decapolis. This is a Greek term, meaning 10 cities. They are in the land, once again, of the Greeks and the Gentiles and the unclean. And it is here, against the backdrop of the feeding of the 5,000, against the backdrop of this encounter with this woman and the breadcrumbs, it is here that Jesus now feeds the 4,000 among the Greeks. And what is left over? Seven basketfuls of bread. There were 12 basketfuls left over in the land of Israel to represent the tribes of Israel. And there's seven basketfuls in Greek territory to indicate what exactly. And there's a lot of debate about this. But if we zoom out a little bit further and we look in Matthew and we go a little bit further ahead, we see that the call of Jesus in this passage is a call that goes beyond the tribalism that was common in Jesus' day and even is common in ours. Later on, as we're in the... The Gospel of Matthew, weeks after this, and still just a, a week or two before the crucifixion, Jesus tells another parable. In this one, a wealthy landowner hires some workers at nine o'clock, and then goes out and hires some more at noon, and then goes out and hires some more at five o'clock, and at the end of the day, he pays them all the same wage, much to the chagrin of those who started the day at nine o'clock. And the landowner's response in Jesus' parable what business is it of yours if I want to be generous with my money? This story of the feeding of the 5,000, the teaching with the Pharisees, the encounter with the woman in Tyre, and now the feeding of the 4,000 is a real-life example of that parable. And whatever the seven basketfuls left over means, it's clearly symbol symbolic, but it's clearly meaning almost as if Jesus is saying, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs but it's good and it's generous and I'm gonna do it anyway. I'm not just the bread of life for the Israelites. I'm the bread of life for the whole world too. 
What business is it of yours if I want to be generous with my bread? And I don't just have crumbs. I've got leftovers. Are you ready for this, disciples? And the answer is no, they're not. But remember, things are not always what they seem. And we can get a greater picture and understanding of what is going on if we can zoom out and take account of the bigger picture. The Scopes verdict ruled in favor of the state, and John Scopes was found guilty. The ACLU did not get to protest it and take it to the Supreme Court. The fervor and the economic boom for Dayton soon died down. And John Scopes' life in Tennessee and career in education would be ruined. But in the national consciousness, in the popular media, the trial became about a showdown between science and religion, even though it was never originally intended as such. And it's often portrayed as a victory for science, for reason, and for enlightenment over superstition and religion. But it's helpful to note some of the other teachings that were present in the state-mandated biology textbook. The book taught in racial superiority and taught that there were five varieties of races, the most supreme of which was those of European descent. The book also taught on the concept of what is known as eugenics. This is what we do with plants and animals where we selectively breed so that we will, so that we will get a more supreme breed as a result. The book taught on that, and here's a quote from the state-mandated biology textbook in the state of Tennessee in 1925. When people marry, there are certain things that the individual as well as the race should demand. And he goes on to say those with handicaps, uh, such as certain diseases or other ailments, he says of those, it is not only unfair, but it's criminal to hand those down to posterity. If such people were lower animals, we would probably kill them off to prevent them from spreading. Humanity will not allow this, but we do have the remedy of separating the sexes in asylums or other places and in various ways of preventing intermarriage and the possibilities of perpetuating such a low and degenerate race. Remedies of this sort have been tried successfully in Europe and are now meeting with success in this country. Not so much a victory for reason and for enlightenment. This was written in 1914, taught in schools in 1925, and practiced by Nazi Germany in the 1930s and 1940s. I share this with you not to beat up on science. We can't do that and then say, why aren't scientists coming to church? I share that with you not for that reason. I share this with you to tell you about the power of zooming out, of looking at the story behind the story. And I hope that you can take away one of three things from today's message, if not all three. That power of zooming out, of taking stock of what's going around, whether it's with the Scopes monkey trial or the woman in Tyre who was asking for breadcrumbs. People will sometimes come to me and they'll ask questions about difficult passages in the Bible, and I'm glad they do. I'm glad they're reading the Bible. And oftentimes my advice is read around it, read the passages around it, read the verses around it, and more often, often than not, that answers their question. That is an exercise in doing what's called interpreting the Bible with the Bible. You take some of these passages that are unclear, and you take what you know and understand from other passages, and you bring those into it to help your understanding, to inform the interpretation of the passage in question. Secondly, we have done this 
because I hope it's given you a greater understanding of this particular passage and this particular encounter with this woman because it comes up a lot, especially online in our day with our heightened awareness of anything that sounds remotely racist or misogynistic. There are, ter- there are terrible interpretations of this passage that go viral online every year. And I hope that the next time you see that, you can understand really what's going on in Mark chapter 7 and understand that you need to look in Mark 6 and Mark 8 to get a fuller picture of it. And this leads to the third thing that I hope that you take away from this. And it's a sense of awe and absolute beauty of what it is that our faith has brought to our world. This encounter between Jesus and this woman has absolutely changed our world. And I'm not exaggerating when I say this. The world is different today because of this exchange. We do not have the world that we have today and the assumptions that we make about the inherent worth of individuals, if not for this encounter. If Jesus were racist or if he were misogynist, or even if he was just unaware and the woman helped enlighten him, this would not be a story worth telling. But this one is different because it breaks the norms and the stereotypes. And it shines a light precisely on the change that God has brought into our world through the gospel of Jesus. There's a historian named John Dixon, not the John Dixon that you may know in our church. This guy's Australian. Here's what he says about our shared faith. I'm simply asking you to apply your own sense of what Jesus taught and to ask the question, what is Christianity's unique contribution to history? And I don't think we can honestly say warfare or torture because those things were doing just fine in Greece and Rome before the Christians came along. The question is, when the Christians are doing those things, are they following their faith or are they just participating in all that is common to humanity? I think that answer is obvious. But when they're starting hospitals, those are unique. Those were not in Greece and Rome. So you've got to be looking at what is the unique thing that Christianity has brought into the world. And the question for us is, do we pass the test? Whether you've been here for 30 years or for 30 minutes, do you understand that it's the gospel of Jesus that allows us to see and to value the inherent worth and the image of God in all of humanity? There's another historian named Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, but he's also named Tom Holland, and he's also British, and he's secular. And he says this, just as a priest refused to consider that he might be descended from an ape, so now are many in the West reluctant to contemplate that their values and even their very lack of belief might be traceable back to Christian origins. He has a whole book about this called Dominion. And the point of his book is to say that our world is the way it is because of Christianity and the worth, the worth of every individual that we take so for granted. We take for granted because it comes from Christianity and Christianity has penetrated every corner of the world with that idea. It was people who read the Bible who were shaped and formed by reading the Bible, who saw what the Bible said as what it said about themselves. It was people who read the Bible with all their heart and let the Bible read all of their hearts. It was those people who grasped an understanding of the image of God stamped on all of humanity and who were the ones who fought for abolition or hospitals or education or the individual rights of humanity and the inherent worth of humanity. It was those people. It was people like 
Eleanor Roosevelt, who, informed by her faith in Christ, led the United Nations in drafting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the wake of the havoc that Nazism wreaked on our world. She led the draft of that with the United Nations, probably at the table of Sam Maxwell. I'm not really sure. That was a joke. (laughs) I thought it was going to be good. We serve a beautiful God, a beautiful God whose beauty we are called to reflect in our interactions with one another, not in ways that reinforce the natural tribalism that is inherent in all of us, but in self-sacrificial ways that see the image of God in the person across from each one of us. God has been changing the world with this for the past 2,000 years. And if you grasp this, and I grasp this, then we can continue changing it even more and maybe, just maybe, pass our final exam. Our hymn today is going to be hymn number 583. If you want to talk more about this beautiful faith of ours, if you want to talk more about this church, this beautiful church in which we serve, I'd love to invite you down front during this song. You can meet with me or other ministers on our staff, and we'd love to talk with you more about that as we sing hymn number 583.